Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. This is episode 43 for the month of September 2020. The summer heat has killed off a good part of my garden, so I'm here praying for the rain of fall. As always, if you have articles you want me to read, send them to info at GI Pearls or on Twitter at GI underscore Pearls. All right, let's crack open those journals, shall we? Our first paper gives us an excellent lesson not only in association slash causation axis, but also in how to appropriately give a title to an article. And you all know how much I cringe whenever I read another vitamin D article, but this one I had to read because of the reasons I've just given you. The title is Levels of Vitamin D are Low After Crohn's Disease is Established, but Not Before. This is quite a clever study. Many studies on the link between vitamin D and IBD have been published in the past, but the question always was, the chicken or the egg? Which came first? Here they looked at blood samples from U.S. military personnel diagnosed with Crohn's disease, 240 patients in total. They looked at vitamin D before diagnosis of IBD versus sometime after the diagnosis. And what do you think they found? There was no association of levels of vitamin D and development of Crohn's disease. So what this suggests that low vitamin D levels emerge after you get diagnosed with Crohn's disease. This makes some sense. Maybe after you get Crohn's disease, you stop going out and getting natural vitamin D levels because you're sick. So instead of fixing vitamin D and seeing how it affects your IBD, we should focus on fixing IBD and then seeing what happens with vitamin D levels, which appear to be a completely separate issue. Another point is there'll be a direct correlation between the severity of your Crohn's disease and levels of vitamin D. So you get my point here. A very clever study. Another quick one. Now that we've learned from episode 41 all the latest guidelines on treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis, hint, hint, if you haven't, go listen to episode 41, including the fact that if patient responds to initial therapy, they should probably stay on maintenance therapy. This next paper should come to you as no surprise then. In this observational study, double-blind trial comparing oral viscous budesonide versus fluticasone inhaler, they looked at what happened after patients completed the trial and went on on observational part of the trial. Over half the patients ended up with recurrent symptoms within 12 months of stopping therapy. So symptoms come back quite quickly. And it didn't matter whether you want budesonide or fluticasone, which makes sense. And if you had symptoms, it is very likely that your esophagus looked terrible. And these patients required dilation and had a lot of eosinophils. In fact, eosinophils returned even if they didn't have symptoms at all for most patients. So again, this illustrates that most patients require long-term treatment of ELE. Let's talk about this a little more because there's another paper that I just read about this. Say you have a patient whom you diagnose with possible EOE because they presented to the emergency room with a hot dog in their esophagus. You took the hot dog out, noticed stricturing esophagus, maybe did a light dilation, put them on a PPI, and asked them to see you again for repeated dilation and biopsies, and to discuss food elimination diet or other therapies, but they never showed. Now it's two years later, you meet them again, and during endoscopy, esophagus is, say, only 10 millimeters or smaller. What is the clinical course for these patients, assuming that they're now totally on board with treatment? There is a paper published in GIE that looked at over 1,000 adult patients with EOE and found that only about 7% of these patients end up in situations like this, meaning severe stricturing of the esophagus. 
Keep in mind that the most important determinant of stricture formation is how long the disease goes untreated. The average diameter of the stricture was just under 8 millimeters, which basically means that you can't put your gastroscope right through it. With the mean maximum diameter achieved with dilation was just over 15 millimeters, and it took anywhere from 1 to 17 dilations to get there. And if you're not sure what to aim for for your eosinophil esophagitis patients, I guess 15 millimeters is a good target. The kicker here is that if your eosinophils decreased, you are much more likely to achieve a larger esophagus diameter. And that was the most important factor, achieving EOS count below 15. Moral of this story is that expect about 7% of your EOE patients to have severely stricturing phenotype, and you need to control eosinophils, otherwise you are very unlikely to help them. I think it's very much unclear to everyone what works better under perfect circumstances, dietary modification or steroids, but in the real world, it appears that these severe stricturing phenotype EOE patients, steroids may be the way to go up front. And the good news is that you can help most of these patients, almost 9 out of 10 patients, at least from this paper. So keep steroids nearby and dilate as needed. Recently on Twitter, there was some chatting about who does better colonoscopies, endoscopists or nurse practitioners, PAs, or even surgeons. And there was a lot of talk about how some surgeons do excellent colonoscopies. This was an interesting paper related to that topic. It comes from Cleveland Clinic, and it's published on diseases of colon and rectum. They retrospectively looked at colonoscopies between 2012 and 2014, performed by 54 gastroenterologists, 21 colorectal surgeons, and 9 general surgeons. Basically, it looks like everyone who did colonoscopies at Cleveland Clinic during those years. This study looked on only screening colonoscopies and looked at quality metrics, and no surprises were found. Adenoma detection rates for gastroenterologists met the quality standard with an average ADR of 28%, but colorectal surgeons dropped down to just below 25%, and general surgeons were even worse, 18%. And keep in mind why ADR is important. It is a surrogate for missing polyps at colonoscopy. And this was true for all kinds of polyps, not just adenomas in this study. Sesalcerated polyp detection rate was also best for gastroenterologists, second best for colorectal surgeons, and the worst for general surgeons. They were just not good at finding these polyps. Two things to note, withdrawal time isn't everything, so don't go swearing by your withdrawal time. ADR is still king, because at least in this study, the withdrawal time was actually longer for surgeons. Another thing, study did not look at patient characteristics, including age of patients between each group, but thankfully those don't really influence ADR too much, to a degree stronger than the difference between the groups that was noted. The advice that I have for our surgical colleagues, one thing first, do you do enough screening colonoscopies? And if the answer is no, then probably give it up and let someone else do it, specifically for colon cancer screening. But if you're doing enough colonoscopies, improve your technique and track what you're doing. Here's one idea. If your ADR is low, ask a high ADR person from your department or ask a gastroenterology colleague to come watch you do a case or two and give you some pointers, and your ADR will probably improve. Let's say you diagnosed a patient with cirrhosis, and you've signed them up for ultrasound and told them all about how they need upper endoscopy to look for varices. Seems reasonable. And your patient tells you, Doc, do I really think I have varices? How sure are you? And of course, we're talking about compensated advanced chronic liver disease here. If a patient is completely decompensated, I think the answer is pretty obvious. You probably say, hey, I can almost guarantee you have varices at this point. But if they're compensated, the answer is not as clear. This next paper from Cook County Hospital in Chicago came up with a clever way of predicting presence of esophageal varices. For the liver nerds, 
Bavino for consensus stated that if your liver stiffness on elastography is less than 20 kPa and your platelets are higher than 150, chances of you having varices are very low. But the folks from the Cook County thought that we can do better than that. And they came up with a new score. And when they compared this score to the Bovino, this new score had the highest proportion of EGDs avoided compared to Bovino. 54% versus 31% for Bovino. There's nothing magical in this score. It includes platelet count, serum albumin, and liver stiffness. So just one more marker compared to Bovino. And it makes it relatively simple because all these things are available at centers that do routine elastography measurements. Most importantly, if your patient has low platelets, but elastography is not super high, and this score will avoid endoscopy in a bit under 20% of these patients, which is no small potatoes. So this score appears to be working slightly better than expanded Bravino score, meaning platelets over 110 and liver stiffness less than 25. Also, the score calculator is available online, and you can try this for yourself to see if your clinical judgment before the score is as good as the scoring system here. I'll put a link in the description for those of you who want to give it a try. Gallbladder polyps are very common, and we GI docs order a lot of ultrasounds and find these all the time. What are we supposed to do with them? If they're large, say over one centimeter, we usually refer them for surgical removal, and if they're small, you're supposed to just watch them. One of the major problems with follow-up of gallbladder polyps is how long we're supposed to watch them for. No clear answer is given in the guidelines. This new study published in JAMA Network is titled Outcomes of Gallbladder Polyps and Their Association with Gallbladder Cancer, a 20-Year Cohort. In this large database, 5.8% of people who had ultrasound had a polyp in the gallbladder. The larger the polyp, the higher the risk of cancer. No surprise there, but here's an interesting quote from the paper. Polyps initially smaller than 10 millimeters were almost never associated with future gallbladder cancer, and polyps initially sized 10 millimeters or larger were only rarely associated with gallbladder cancer after the first year and not associated after the fourth year, end quote. Also, patients were just as likely to be diagnosed with gallbladder cancer if they had polyps or not. So maybe we are running around chasing our tail most of the time, ordering too many follow-up ultrasounds for gallbladder polyps. Overall, risk for small polyps appears to be very low. What is the correlation between rectal bleeding and increased stool frequency and disease activity in IBD? Meaning, how does the colon look on endoscopy? And the next paper published in the July issue of Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology tried to answer that very question. The data came from a phase 3 large trial of different formulations of mesalamine. That study was published in 2017. So this was a post hoc analysis of that study. Why would anybody supposed to care about this? This is important because the goal of therapy is not only reduction of symptoms, but also reduction in inflammation and hopefully normalization of colonic physiology, which in turn hopefully reduces symptoms. One would argue that fecal calprotectin would be helpful here, and in this study, more than 80% of patients who were in endoscopic remission had a fecal calprotectin less than 250, which is great. But what is interesting is that half the patients with calprotectin less than 250 were not in endoscopic remission, meaning not in Mayo score 0 or 1. See, it doesn't work both ways. What about patient-reported outcomes like bleeding or stool frequency? How well do these correlate with endoscopic remission? And remember, many of the clinical trials use patient-reported outcomes as even primary outcomes in their studies for IBD. The answer here is that this is not news to IBD docs, but this is important. Absence of rectal bleeding gives you a high level of sensitivity for endoscopic remission, 
but not stool frequency. Basically, what this means is that if you're a good IBD doctor, you might as well be a good IBS doctor, because many times stool frequency will be different even in the absence of inflammation. And just a little reminder here to go back a little bit, here we're talking about mild to moderate ulcerative colitis, not severe. So in this study, again, if you improved your endoscopic appearance and gotten better Mayo score endoscopically, you did have generally better stool frequency and less bleeding. But again, it doesn't work the other way. If you improved stool frequency and got rid of your rectal bleeding, more than half of these patients had no change or worsening in their endoscopic score. So hard to use patient-reported outcomes in this manner, even though that these are the things that matter to patients the most. And this study is another proof that objective endoscopic evaluation is still necessary in mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. This article was sent by a listener, and it's an interesting one, since it gives you a new option for treatment of H. pylori infection. This is a rifabutin-based triple therapy, which is made by Red Hill Biopharma, who also happens to fund this paper published in Annals of Internal Medicine. So let's see how good rifabutin-based therapy is. This is a combo of amoxicillin, omeprazole, and rifabutin given as four capsules every eight hours for 14 days. That's a lot of pills, but so are many other regimens. So that's not a big deal. Rifabutin is a good choice for a drug for H. pylori. It has good activity against it, and resistance rates against it seem to be very low. In the past, it has been used as a backup regimen, and it has been successful in over 70% cases, which is not too bad for a backup drug. And apparently, it's better tolerated than clarithromycin or flagell-based therapies. So there is plausibility in using rifabutin-based regimens. And here's a phase 3 randomized double-blind trial of treatment-naive H. pylori-infected patients. These were symptomatic patients with dyspepsia and a positive urea breath test, plus upper endoscopy with a positive culture. So they compared their triple mix pill versus amoxicillin 250 plus omeprazole 10 milligrams. And again, this is a four pills, three times a day for 14 days. And for the purists out there, rifabutin is known to color your urine. So the active comparator was spiked with riboflavin to color your urine too. Currently, all of my patients are getting quadruple therapy, which should be the standard practice. And that's what the guidelines recommend. So it's a bit strange that the comparator group was not standard practice. Not even close, but it's not a surprise, because Red Hill clearly was gunning for a win here. Each group had about 200 patients. How did they do? Rifabutin-based therapy had 83% success rate versus 58% for control. This is in the intention to treat analysis, by the way, which is more like real life. When looking at adherent population, numbers were slightly better with 90% cure rate with rifabutin-based therapy versus 65% for control. So four capsules three times a day, with rifabutin-based therapy is no vast improvement over current therapies, but it's a new alternative. And here, the comparison was not quadruple therapy, not even triple therapy. And basically, as I mentioned, gaining a clinical trial to get the drug approved, which is fine, but a bit unfair. Am I happy this thing is published? Not entirely. Am I upset? Not really either. I think having another option to treat H. pylori is great, but I think we have to wait for a real-world comparison, maybe to see how well this works compared to therapies that were actually used in our patients. And again, I don't think this would be used as a first-line therapy. I think quadruple therapy is the way to go, at least in populations where clarithromycin resistance is high, which pretty much includes all of the U.S. because many patients were exposed to either clarithromycin or amoxicillin or flagell or something else in the past anyway. 
This next paper from New England Journal is, in my opinion, the most important metabolism paper of the year. I've been a big believer in bariatric surgery, since in many patients with high BMIs, robust weight loss is hard to achieve, and the benefits on blood pressure, liver disease, heart disease, etc., and even things like arthritis is hard to discount. There were some suggestions that the actual glucose metabolism may have many favorable changes when you do a Roux and Y and rearrange the small bowel you're supposed to get benefits beyond the weight loss on glucose homeostasis. I was a true believer in this dogma, well, until now. The title of this paper, Does Gastric Bypass Improve Glycemic Control Beyond the Effects of Weight Loss? Question mark. And as you might have guessed it, the answer is probably not. A little more background. The myth of this comes from the fact that some studies have shown better reduction in diabetes in cases of gastric bypass, comparing Roux-en-Y versus gastric sleeve or something like that which sometimes achieve comparable weight loss. So it's never very clear if bypass itself has some magical properties on glucose homeostasis because each patient loses a different amount of weight. And if all things are equal, is there an independent effect of Roux-en-Y on homeostasis? And this is what the paper is trying to answer. Here they looked at several factors in patients who lost weight without surgery versus those who had a Roux-en-Y. They looked at hepatic insulin sensitivity, muscle and adipose insulin sensitivity, beta cell function, and metabolic response to meals, even gut microbiome too, but we're not going to talk about that. They compared a total of 11 patients, which seems low, but I suspect if there's an effect on metabolism, it should be large enough to be found in this type of study. Otherwise, even if something significant was found in a larger trial, effect size would be too small to matter. And so this glucose comprehensive testing was done prior to surgery or dieting when the BMI was 43 or so in both groups. And again, after surgery or dieting, when the mean BMI was 35 in both groups, which is about 18% of body weight loss total. And early postprandial glucose levels were higher in gastric bypass patients than in diet-only patients. But overall, 24-hour glycemia, basically looking the area under the curve, were similar in both two groups. And weight loss markedly increased beta cell function too, because of the increase in both beta cell glucose sensitivity and whole body insulin sensitivity in both diet and surgery group. So basically, there were no significant differences between these two groups. And this is a quote from the discussion. The similar findings in participants in the two groups challenge the current belief that upper gastrointestinal bypass has clinically meaningful effects on key metabolic factors involved in glucose homeostasis and the pathogenesis of diabetes that are independent of weight loss. We found nearly identical benefits of matched weight loss induced by gastric bypass or diet alone on multi-organ insulin sensitivity. Again, this was a very detailed study reminiscent of those 1950s and 60s studies on insulin measurements where they put people in hotel rooms slash metabolic chambers. I really do think that this one is the most important paper of the year again. And it only shows is weight loss is weight loss. doesn't matter how you achieve it and has nothing to do with how successful people are at each angle of weight loss, medical or surgical. So this is not an anti-bariatric surgery paper. Again, this is a pure metabolism physiology paper. The title of the next paper published in CGH is Regression of Fibrosis Stage with Treatment Reduces Long-Term Risk of Liver Cancer in Patients with Hemochromatosis Caused by HFE Mutation. It is well established that fibrosis in patients with hemochromatosis regresses a bit if they are on therapy, meaning phlebotomy. This was a retrospective chart review of 100 patients from France and Australia, two countries united by common enemy, hemochromatosis. 
These were homozygotes C2A2Y mutation patients in HFE with F3 or F4 fibrosis at diagnosis. About 40% of patients improved fibrosis score when a biopsy was done, on average about 10 years later or longer. Logistic regression showed that the older age, presence of diabetes, and higher DGT were negatively associated with fibrosis regression, meaning the older you are, the longer you have the disease, and the worse the disease is, less likely you are to reverse it. No surprise there. What's most remarkable to me is that 34% of patients ended up with liver cancer, but only 3 had F3 fibrosis, and the rest had frank cirrhosis. Another way to look at this is patients who had liver biopsy to look for fibrosis stage and not cancer. 8 out of 27 patients with F3, F4 fibrosis had liver cancer, and none of the patients with F2 fibrosis. Remember, we started with all patients who had at least F3 or F4 fibrosis. Again, overall, 18% of patients with cirrhosis and over 70% of patients with F3 fibrosis regressed to F2 or less. This is for patients who had good follow-up, by the way, so likely good adherence to therapy. The next question is, would anyone be advocating to re-biopsying these cirrhosis patients who had potentially could have evolved into non-cirrhosis, meaning would you stop screening these patients for liver cancer, assuming they regressed in terms of their fibrosis? Probably the answer is yes, since this was just a retrospective trial, but the evidence for cancer screening for these patients is neither here nor there. I don't think it is as clear as people cut it. I think a lot of these people still will need some sort of screening. That's all I have for you today. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Some of you have expressed interest in getting newsletter updates on when the podcast comes out. So send me an email at info at GI Pearls if you're interested, and I'll add you to the list. Always welcome comments and suggestions. So again, email them to info at GI Thanks again. Bye-bye.